Hey everybody. Hey y'all. So I've got a special treat for you. This was not announced. This was not pre-planned in any way. But I feel like this is more what kids like today. Don't you think, Tony? I feel like this is what the kids are into. It's like yeah. spontaneity and uh, spontaneity and like things are genuine. Maybe not pronounce, mispronouncing the word spontaneity. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm at my home here in Edmond, Oklahoma. Um, some of you know I've been on the road a lot lately. Uh, so I'm really happy to be here. Oh, there's Steph. Hey, we've got your husband right here. Um, and we're having a really good time. Uh, Silas, what's up? It's good to see you, friend. That's amazing. Silas is Tony's son, and uh, they sell guitars. We need to say more about that in a minute because it's very cool, the stuff that they're doing. So here's the deal. Um, Tony called... <laughs> Steph says, hi, husband. <laughs> That's great. Um, Tony Caldwell is one of my best friends and one of my favorite humans. In fact, I feel bad, by the way, because I'm not... And I'm not throwing shade at anybody, like, publishing-wise or something... But a bunch of my friends were supposed to get books, and it sounds like none of them have got books yet, which makes it a little sad. So I was like, hey, Tony, did you get your book? And I think no one has it, so I'm a little sad about this. But I was just reading to Tony directly what I uh, say about him in the acknowledgments in The Road Away From God. Tony Caldwell, who watches over my soul. A handful of words, but with a lot of content. Um, Tony uh, is a psychotherapist in the Jungian tradition, is that, the, is that what we'd say? Yeah. Um, does spiritual direction. He's an amazing friend to me. And, you know, I think about those, uh, well, just really the road I've been walking the last few years. And I think about this really significant time. Oh, Ken Tanner. <laughs> hey, I love you, Father Ken. Hey, I'm, I'm stopping. I don't care. Father Ken, does this mean you didn't get a book either? Because I promise you, so help me God, I sent you a book. Tony didn't get a book. Carlos Rodriguez didn't get a book. Uh, Stephanie Tate got hers like a few days ago. So I'm starting to freak out a bit here. Father Ken, if you did not get the book, that might be the person that puts me over to like hit the panic alarm to feel like no one that I actually know actually has this book. So anyway, <laughs> you don't have it yet? Oh, geez. Okay. That's really embarrassing. Well, y'all are, are supposed to have books. I promise. I wrote, I wrote you a beautiful inscription. I don't know why this is happening to me. Anyway, I don't want to degenerate here. I'm thinking about <laughs> David Bissono has one, which makes me happy. Love you, friend. <laughs> so um, I'm thinking about those days before you moved to Nashville when I got to spend some time in Oxford. And Tony, as we were just becoming friends, really, uh, in a way with no agenda or expectation, graciously was just willing to sit down with me. And I don't think, I'm, I'm certain you never anticipated something like this. This wasn't like a, no. you weren't wanting like advertising time or something. <laughs> right. Uh, but I immediately knew that Tony was somebody that my whole soul felt safe with. And one of the things that I really love about, well, getting to do things like this. And uh, one of the things that's actually really important for me in the book is being able to celebrate those people who have been significant for me in this path towards resurrection uh, so there's nothing legalistic about that, that everybody needs to be experiencing resurrection life. Uh, but I have. I've met extraordinary people. I've met wise gods along the way, uh, soul friends. And uh, that means everything to me. And I don't know where I'd be without that. So, Tony, you're certainly one of those people. And I'm honored to have you in my house. It's so good to have you here right now. So thank you for being here. Good to be here. Uh, we're having a little bourbon. We're not shy about that. So this is a little Larceny Barrel Proof, the new batch, which is uh, fantastic, by the way. Soft, 
uh, weeded bourbon, but that's like 129 proof. So you've got uh, like a lot of just rolling flavors right here. Uh, big, big build flavors on a weeder is something I get very excited about. So <laughs> we are well equipped for this conversation right now. Um, I don't want to, uh, to dance around this thing too much. I have been doing a little series on the Zeitcast based on the book. Been pretty loose, uh, riffing on the first couple chapters. The third chapter is a chapter called uh, When the Story Gets Too Small. And I don't want to belabor anything there, but I felt like maybe this would be a good leaping off point at least because I feel like some of the things I at least attempt to name within this chapter are things that I think are, well, I'm hoping will be deeply resonant for where a lot of people are because I do feel like uh, this book in so many ways has been a love letter to my friends who have uh, been uh, on this road with me. So a passage that I thought about, and I don't think, as with anything, any of this is profound. It does feel a little funny, but that, to pick this up and do this, I did grab Nicole's copy, and Nicole very sweetly highlights things. Isn't that wonderful? So I just want you all to know I do not highlight uh, my own books. Um, that would be a, a, a next level of narcissism even for me that I, don't, I wouldn't feel comfortable with. But one of the things that this chapter is really all about, and it's there's a tension that's here because I don't, goodness, I, and I don't say this from a pious place, obviously, but I feel like in so many ways, I'm more at peace than I've ever been in my life. I feel very settled in my weird, quirky faith. I know that doesn't mean everybody in my life is settled with it, but I, I feel settled with it. So in some ways, it feels like this particular project, there's a lot angst, a lot less angst in it than, say, uh, Shipwreck or something. Um, but one of the things I try to really identify here, which I do think is a road that I've walked, and a lot of people that I know and love are walking now, is this sense that when you're part of a community, and whatever community we're a part of inevitably is connected to our identity. Like, how, how do we know who we are? except who people tell us that we are in relation to them. <laughs> that's, that's how I think all the earliest stages and significant stages of kind of finding out who we are, any kind of sense of personhood, that's where that comes from. So when we go on a journey where any of that gets called into question, and, you know, Tony, I could be wrong about this. I'm not going to keep riffing much longer, but my sense is that it's fairly rare that anybody just decides to launch out this way because I think the stakes in terms of security and stability and connection are so high. Most people who end up going on kind of a different journey, maybe all the more if they really knew what they were doing, would never exactly consciously choose it because the cost is so serious. Right in terms of rejection and all the things we have to rethink and all that. So it's my sense at least that most people who go on this kind of journey don't precisely decide to go on this kind of journey. They more feel like they're pushed out. Uh, something, some experience happens, some speed bump comes, where's this sense of, hey, I'd love to still be part of this community in the same way that I was before, but all of a sudden it feels untenable. I can't be here, at least in the same way that I used to be. So just in the spirit of launching that out, and then there will be no more reading. But um, page 58, so early in the chapter. Because and I do believe this. And there, there's no agenda with the book to tell people. I think a lot of folks that I know, um, some folks are finding new life and a new way of being within their respective faith traditions. Other people find they have to leave it 
to figure out who they are. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer to this question. So this uh, little bit goes, there's often a faithful way both to stay and to leave, and knowing when and how to do the former or the latter is both tenuous and highly particular. The only certainty is that you don't need another human to give you permission to go on the journey you have to take. The God who told Abraham to, quote, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, Genesis 12, 1, is the God of the Exodus who is always on the move and who promises to go with you wherever you go. So whether or not anybody else gives you permission, God does. Thus, it's never really a question of if you can go, but whether you have the grace to come or go now. Thought that might be a good premise for us to riff from. So, Tony, just kind of right off the, the, the cuff for you, growing up in Mississippi, right? Yeah. Uh, now, now, I know you're in Nashville now, but you didn't grow up in Oxford. No, Tupelo. Tupelo, okay, that's what yeah. I thought. So what was kind of your earliest memory of hitting a barrier, hitting a moment where there was a sense of, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to leave my father's house? What did yeah. that look like for you? Yeah. So it's, it's so timely and so providential that we're talking about this because Juan Carlos and I were talking about this while we were driving over here. Mm. We had no idea you were going to propose that we record something today. So, <laughs> yes, we do. Um, yeah, it's a... Uh, and, and I remember saying to him, this is something that I feel every day, mm. you know, and have felt for years. Um, and that moment for me was a, it was a series of moments, but there was, there was a moment where um, I was doing some interim pastoring uh, in the community that we were in at the time. And I remember uh, feeling led to craft a sermon around mm. um, inclusivity. Mm. And so at the end, it was like naming every group and every outgroup you could think of, wow. followed by the words, God loves you. Mm. And that was obviously unsettling to the powers that be. Wow. Um, and What kind of church was this, if you don't mind me asking? This was uh, a Methodist okay. church that okay. eventually uh, left the Methodist um, tradition to be more conservative Okay. okay. Um, after we left. But... Um, yeah, so I remember saying the words like every word around the variations on human sexuality, mm. followed by the words "God loves you," and things mm. got weird after that. Mm. Unexplainably, never talked about, never directly spoken to, but after that moment, things got weird. And maybe just to dig into yeah. that moment for just a minute, because yeah. and I'm not like, look, I know you've done some yeah. of the great work you've done in terms of race and things like that, so I know you're not afraid to take a stand. But also, my sense of you, Tony, is I don't feel like you're just by nature someone who goes around like trying to blow things up. What, right. what, what would you say? Like, what, what was your agenda? You felt like there was some kind of a push to express God's love to everybody in the community that way. Like, what, what, what kind of pushed you forward in that time in that way? What do you feel like yeah. was going on there? So my experience of growing up being different in many ways myself, the experience of growing up being my sibling and I being too of four white kids in an otherwise black neighborhood, mm. you know. So a lot of other uh, life experiences around difference and really feeling like I was grafted into this community that was somewhat a sea of sameness mm. and feeling that sort of like that, you feel like you level up yeah. in some way when you come from this place of not good enoughness yeah. as far as the social hierarchy. Mm. And uh, there, was a, there was a feeling of uh, being elevated into uh, being more of a standard issue human if that mm, makes sense yeah, I, I think I, yeah. that's some some people out there listening that 
feel different and not in a good way. Mm. Uh, feel like when you get into yeah. a community um, of faith that you um, there's a sense of belonging that it validates you as a human. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the kind of wound that I came in with is this sense of like, uh, oh, I belong now. Mm. And so the loss of that belonging was was catastrophic to my sense of self. It's also been what pushed me further into my own personal mm. relationship with what I would would refer to as God. And quick question, Tony: Would you yeah. have had any sense going into that sermon of that? Did yeah. you have any idea that this? broad proclamation that everyone is loved mm-hmm. could have led to this place like did you sense that coming no and you know mm. part of part of what was driving me then was that there was someone visiting that congregation at the time who approached me after a sermon and said uh you know i'm experiencing some domestic violence mm. and uh, i said you know it sounds like he's in a lot of suffering like he's suffering and not to excuse what what the person was was going through but she said actually uh he is a she Mm. and i don't know how you feel about that Mm. and i everything in me felt that expectation of rejection and shame because she was in a same-sex partnership so i just gave her this big hug Mm. and my number and was like call me anytime Mm. because i just identify with that feeling of the more i'm me in this space the less i'm going to belong here yeah and um I found out like two weeks after that she died. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow. And and so part of what stuck with me Ooh. through the uh, through the experience of isolation from leaving that community um, was a sense of looking back on that moment. I wouldn't do a thing different. Mm. I would do exactly the same thing and say wow. exactly the same thing. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting, Tony. And I mean. In so many different directions, because one, and I know one of the things that I try to key in on this chapter, and and maybe this is so basic or so elementary, maybe people are like, well, yeah, but for me, this feels like still an important thing to say. I feel like when people go on this kind of road, when they go on this kind of journey, inevitably you'll have people who will kind of say, well, like, why, why exactly are you doing this? And I actually feel like it's kind of important to name this kind of road really never leads to, (laughs) I mean, even if there's a deeper sense of self or like whatever, it's, it's bumpy road that like there aren't, I feel like in the kind of cultural expectations that we would have for what it means to be successful and to thrive and flourish in those communities, it doesn't make sense. And there's a reason why people would say like, well, why, why exactly do you feel like you need to do this? Well, you know, you don't, I think that's again, because I don't think you exactly decide. I will tell you, I'm not trying to go super deep cut here because I don't think um, this book is like a great film where everybody's going to be all that interested in uh, what could have been, might have been, whatever. But I will tell you, this chapter for me initially, and it was simply cut for like space, Mm -hmm. I really went into some of these things because I think about like so um, growing up in West Charlotte, which was roughly the community there at the time. It was basically 50% black. And especially I made the transition around like uh, sixth grade from going from these private little more fundamentalist evangelical Christian schools to public school. Mm-hmm. I was suddenly in a very different world. Mm-hmm. And I think about, and I wouldn't want to share more than any of these folks would be comfortable with. I don't know if she ever tunes in now. And I, I, well, I'd love to reconnect, but my think about my friend Aisha, uh, when I think about like the world that she came from, we were doing theater together and all these things. But it's like all these folks that I was sort of thrust into community with, 
forced me to reckon with a reality that was very different from the one that I'd been given. And part of what happened there was that I couldn't deny the fundamental goodness mm -hmm. of the people who were around me. It's like, well, this is different. The ideas are different. Uh, the belief system's different. But um, in these communities that are very different where I come from, everything in me is screaming. You know, I, I, I see the goodness of God. I see um, humans who are more loving, more kind, more caring, more like operate in the, I would say now, if I can put it this way, the fruit and the gifts of the spirit on levels that I did not. So it really, I, I really feel like for me, that was the earliest thing to force this kind of reckoning is mm -hmm. you can't look in the face of people whose lived experience is good and meaningful and true when you've been told they're not good, <laughs> like that forces, a, that forces a kind of crisis. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like it was that kind of experience for you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, I had grown up knowing a vast array of people from every walk of life. Mm. And, and there was something about being in a religious community that was mostly the same. Mm. Um, and, and I think it wasn't obvious at the time, but now we see, you know, how a lot of that's where religion and politics overlaps. Yes. Yes. And, uh, it just wasn't something I was fully conscious of at the time. I've, I've seen yeah. it be, been horrified over the, um, horrified over the last, mm. uh, few years. But at the time I just wasn't conscious of what that was, mm. you know, it was, um, it was a, a very disorienting process to see um, sort of everyone with with the mask off when things mm. got real yeah. around yeah. Uh, hatred towards uh, minority groups, racially mm. and sexually. Mm. And uh, it's honestly, it's something that I listen to people talk about every day, um, and I feel every day, and I'm still not over it. Ooh. That's how much it's it's upsetting to me. Mm. Yeah. Mm. By the way, I just have to acknowledge real quick here. I saw Madeline Jones jump on um, one of those saints, one of those heroes in the faith to me. That's uh, Julius Jones' mom, mm. who's uh, very dear to us and to our community. Just especially when you think about those kind of people whose their very lives and witness jailbreak you. I mean, right. Madeline, one of the most tender and fierce women I've ever been uh, around in a way that's that's, that's so powerful. But um, yeah, you know. Um, I'd love for you to say a little bit more, Tony, about like this experience of when you talk about the mask coming off, mm -hmm. because here's, okay, so here's my experience right now. This, this has been out all of like three weeks or so, and um, I don't really know a way to build a bridge between these worlds. If you've had this kind of experience mm -hmm. and you read about it or hear somebody talk about it, then it seems like people, it's like their souls leap. There's this deep sense of recognition, feeling seen and known. It's like, yes, 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 that's been my story, whatever. Also, and I don't, I, I don't even, I don't say this with any judgment. I think also, almost kind of like the parable of the sower, the idea you throw the same seed out four different places, the very different results. Mm -hmm. I also think half the people who might pick up this book can read about this kind of experience, even the stuff that's kind of narrated in the beginning of the chapter and be like, I have no idea what you're talking about because based on where people live and what their story's right, been, right. you know, they may or, or not, they, they may or may not have any idea what this means, but what for you has it, what did it look like this sense of kind of the mask coming off and feeling like a place where clearly you had received a lot of 
love and safety, which one of the things I'm not trying to get preachy about this here, but for me, this has been important at just in this last stretch. I feel like right now there's a rigidity in culture in general where we have to kind of decide wholesale whether or not places or people have been sources of healing or harm. Mm. And I don't think that's possible. I think what's actually true is that healing and harm happen in the same spaces. And it is absolutely possible to have significant experiences of growth, development, spirituality, in a way that's connected, whole, whatever, and other things that are quite horrifying. And one doesn't negate the other. It does, you know, like, because it's just not as simple as there's a broad verdict on everybody's kind of good or bad. But anyway, I'm, again, I'm not trying to get too far into the thing. I'm curious what that's looked like for you in terms of that sense of hitting the limitations of this community and it, to the point to where you would say it felt like masks were off. Right. Yeah, it's it's uh, that's an experience that's very fragmenting. I mean, mm. so you see so many splits in the black and white, left and right, right and wrong, conservative, uh, progressive, on and on and on. Um, so you see how fragmented it is. Like there's there's a, literally a split in the heart yes. that happens, yes. and and the people who um, I would say have harmed me the most were close enough to actually have healed me at some point. Ooh. So that makes Jeez. it even more painful. Wow. Uh, mm. But it's also easy to forget the good when yeah. the bad hurts so much. Yeah, yeah. So, so that fragmentation is real. I think the real question around that for me has been, uh, what does it mean as far as belonging at this mm. point? Mm. Um, like, you love me and you hurt me. Um, I probably, you probably had the same experience of me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it goes right back to what you were saying earlier. Like at some point belonging is just no longer an option mm. and for me that wasn't that wasn't my personality it wasn't yeah. my defense mechanisms all those things that were at play but the real sense of i no longer belong here was when my soul actually made the call mm. when and your soul uh, made the call my soul made the call and the rest of me has been kicking and screaming the, the rest of the way from there yeah, uh, Tony, I so appreciate you saying it that way because I feel like, especially when people encounter folks in their strength, because like yeah. I know the person that you are right. as a husband, father, therapist, friend, all the things that you do, mm-hmm. and feel the strength of that. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's very powerful to hear you say that you felt yourself kicking and screaming along the way. Mm-hmm. Because then people see folks who have had to make really courageous choices. Right. And it's like, well, that must be a person who's just braver than I am. Not necessarily realizing, oh no, like this is, um, these kind of transitions are just, are, are excruciatingly painful. So mm-hmm. I, I just, I just love the acknowledgement of that. And that sense in the complexity of the people who held you closest mm-hmm. being the ones who are people who are, who are able to, to harm the most. Anyway, I, I don't want to go on. I just, all of that is just landing really deep yeah, right now. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. And you know, parenting is such a, such a huge part of that as well, because yeah. so many of us, uh, want to raise our children in a sense of community or maybe even join communities mm. after we become parents for that reason. Um, and for us, that's what we did. Yeah. And yeah. so the church was sort of a surrogate family, a second family. Mm. Uh, it was our, container like we my wife and I had a a, for a while a really happy second childhood there in a lot of ways Um, Mm. so it's uh, 
when the pain and the hit comes and the call to leave, and you know every yeah. every call to somewhere is a call out of somewhere. Yes, yes. And uh, when that happened, it's it's it. There's phantom pains related to that that I mm. still feel today, and that Ooh. was um, that was over six years ago. Are y'all hearing yeah. that phantom pains? I think that's yeah. powerful. That idea that like you know this sort of reflexive something. Um, I mean, I know. Um, Sure, uh, Sherry Turkle talks about that even in terms of cell phones now. The idea, like, you hear the, you think the phone's ringing when it's not because it's so, like, y- your nervous system has so internalized when you're with that phone enough. Right. But that idea that, you know, even after you're long out of a thing, that there's still the ache and the kind of. Yeah. One thing's because, you know, Tony, I, I experience you to be a person who is bold and courageous and willing to name things for how they are, but also a person of deep empathy. I would love to speak to you maybe because, especially for some of these spaces that have been at some point in your life, places of healing where there was a sense of fragmentation, like whatever, it feels really important to me right now to be able to say, not because so much I'm really wanting to, but it feels, it it just feels like it's helpful in terms of remembering how human we all are. Mm -hmm. We see these things that are very broken about the world, system structures, uh, people who maybe do harm intentionally or not other folks. And I think it's easy to get this idea that, people back out of the driveway one morning deciding to bring rampant pain to the lives of someone else. And what I'm coming to believe is that I just don't think that's the case. People don't like wake up and decide to be evil. Most people are doing the best they can. Right. So so what do you think it, it, it was for you that you saw in some of these spaces, some of these communities where, maybe for lack of a better way to ask it, how did it go wrong? Were people who I'm going to give the assumption did mean well right. and did have some experience of a God of love and mercy and community that they wanted to extend or something. Um, all these things that maybe were going for them, where does that go wrong in the story? Yeah. I think in my case, I mean, it was multiple things, but uh, mostly when I realized that when I was co-pastoring a congregation that if I invited my friends who were not straight there, mm. they would uh, they would belong until they wanted to get married mm. or serve yeah. or do anything besides just show up and and uh, be accepted anyway mm. uh, and maybe loved into some kind of better lifestyle mm-hmm. or better way of of being mm-hmm. um, and all of that just hit me in ways that. Um, my heart just couldn't reconcile. Mm. Yeah. So, so mm. that mostly, um, also the racial dynamics in the nation are what they are yeah. in, in the rural South. There's a particular feel around how much things have festered because they've not been spoken to sure. or addressed sure. or acknowledged. And so that, that was on my heart as well. Mm. And you just can't, you can't go there in certain spaces that, um, want everyone to feel comfortable yeah yeah we're, we're comfort and um, um, a sense of belonging based on shared belief mm. uh, is the centerpiece and anything that rattles that is seen as yeah. problematic yeah wow um, so you, you can't you know it's it's kind of worn out to say you can't be a prophet in your hometown but yeah. it, you can't be prophetic in a place that's more concerned about feel good experiences that don't go to the bone Mm. yeah Mm. because when you go to the bone it's gonna hurt yeah and you know some some hurt is necessary if you're really gonna ever get anywhere when it comes to uh 
how humans treat other humans. Yes. And, yes. and um, a lot of that's been, you know, this was all pre, wow. pre-Trump pre era. Yeah. And I hate to even bring that name into the sure. conversation. But um, since then, the heartbreak for me has been seeing so many people that I know have goodness in their heart mm-hmm. um, give everything that he's ever done or said a complete pass. Mm. And any amount of naming anything he said or done uh, is seen as being hateful. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, that has broken my brain. I still can't uh, process that. Yeah, yeah. You can't, Tony. So many things you said there. I mean, like yeah. one, this idea that um, you can't. There's nothing wrong with the impulse. Who doesn't want to feel safe? Right. Who doesn't want to feel tethered to the ground? Right. Who doesn't want to feel certainty? Right. Like everybody wants that. Right. And in of itself, maybe those desire that desire for security doesn't have to mean something bad. But even when you said that about like how, uh, well, in Jesus' reference that you know, quoting from the prophets, but that a prophet won't be received in their own hometown because there's this idea that if you're willing to step into that discomfort, mm-hmm. that awkwardness, that over againstness, people oftentimes aren't going to be able to receive that, not because they're wicked people fundamentally, but because that desire for certainty and mm-hmm. security is so great, which is how at least, and you know, I, you know, Tony, you, the same way I would, even the delicate way that you got to frame the Trump thing. Like I know Tony well enough to know, and I feel like I don't want to speak for you, but it's not like that we're afraid to talk about Trump or something. It's just the idea that Trump as a person mm-hmm. is not particularly interesting in any one direction or the other. I think that's right. the whole thing about these last few years is that they've been apocalyptic. They've been revelatory. It it reveals things that's in us. Right. Trump as a personality, as a narcissist or whatever, you know, he'll do what he will do. But when you see people begin to speak and act in ways that are really flagrantly against the kind of ideology they've espoused right. their whole lives... Right. That's a deeper question. So, because I feel like even now, I feel like, you know, some of the conversations I have, people are like, well, is it, you know, it's not, no one's trying to keep going on about Trump. We don't care about him or that <laughs> yeah. in, in like kind of a proper way. It's more, what does it mean when a political ideology can that rapidly um, cause people to sort of wholesale embrace ide- ideologies and ways of being in the world with others? Mm-hmm that caused them to feel threatened and not feel any sense of discontinuity. Right. That's the thing I think that a lot of us continue to grapple with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw that, that I was in a collective that could not decisively quickly and easily differentiate between Jesus and Trump, Ooh, yeah. that, uh, that I had to go. Mm. And, um, mm. you know, when I was part of a denomination that would split over human sexuality before splitting over Trumpianity, mm. Um, I knew I had to go, and um, yeah, my heart's hurt ever since. But it's been a, it's it's been the right call. Mm. Yeah, and and so the loneliness that follows that, yeah, is um, is really what I spend a significant amount of each week talking with other people about mm. is a sense of, okay, I I left the thing, yes, yes, but I don't have the new thing, right, right, and, and so there's no replacement, mm. and and there's a wilderness feeling. And, uh, but I, I love what Barbara Brown Taylor says, how Jesus never saved anyone from the wilderness. Yeah, Ooh, that's great. And the, it's, uh, for me, it's been mm. a journey inward and outward in new ways that um, 
is continually painful. I don't want to sugarcoat it at all. Yeah. I don't want to say like, yeah. hey, there's this great, you know, pot of gold on the other side. Right. Uh, but I, I don't in Scripture see a Jesus that lived that way. Yeah. Or, or promised that. Yeah. Um, so I um, think this may be part of what the narrow path feels like and what it means for us in this time and place. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm almost feel like I need to talk about the narrow path less because I'm so concerned. I don't just feel self-referential or something, but I just can't get around it, especially coming from a holiness Pentecostal tradition, which I think rightly emphasized the idea that the way of Jesus is a narrow way. And there was so much that language, like to to follow Jesus is to be unpopular. Mm -hmm. To follow Jesus is to go uphill. To follow Jesus is to go against the grain. To follow Jesus is to go crossways with the desires of the people around you and your own heart. Mm -hmm. Like that stuff is in my bones. That's all I've heard my whole life. And But part of what's so weird about this moment, and this is where it, it still continues to scramble my brain, is that while we see the kind of crosswaysness, that's a phrase I started using as of this morning, <laughs> as I admit words a lot, but we see that kind of against the grain or like whatever. Other people see that, and they have this weird narrative where they're the ones who are part of the persecuted, oppressed minority. Mm-hmm. And people who are going in this direction that inevitably cost them money, jobs, relationships, community, stability, security, or whatever, that they're somehow selling out to culture. Right. And this is the thing, I'm not getting weird, but that I could scream about right now. I could scream about it because I never understand it. How is it that people can be so clearly part of what is the dominant culture? So, and, and, and by the way, being part of the dominant culture isn't necessarily inherently bad, but it does mean there's certain benefits, you know, like there's kind of these unassumed, uncritical, you know, like you kind of, you're a beneficiary of this arrangement. You go against that, and it feels like everything in the universe is against you in the way that feels to me a lot like what I always heard and read and when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. But other people see it, and they say like, oh, no, here are these folks, and they're like just like selling out the culture. Like, what, what is that? What is that thing? Yeah. yeah. So from a psychological perspective, uh, self-interest is at play there. Mm. Self-preservation. So many people that I talk to that choose a side that's safe, it's around money. Ooh, yeah. It's around finances. It's around uh, I vote for this person or I hang with this group or I go in this direction because Mm. it protects my interests financially. Mm. So money being the root of all evil. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you see the split there. Uh, but also we're constantly, we think we're free, mm-hmm. but we're constantly pitched this uh, two-sided um, mm. way of thinking, a very split dualistic way of thinking. And, you know, I, I think we're, we're in a country of people who spend, who maybe identify as Christian, who spend minutes at best a week. Yeah. Reading scripture, and, right, and especially right. reading it from the bottom up. Yes, yes. Um, and spend hour upon hour listening to their Jeez. news media source of choice. Yeah, um, and then call it all Christian, mm. and there, there mm. you go. Which isn't, and uh, Tony, I don't want, I don't want to just start ranting in yeah. eighteen different directions. Just opens right. up so much because even the idea that people feel like. They're choosing their news. That's one of the right. maddening realities of our right. time is that 
no one is choosing their news. Literally no one is. And even if you don't believe that there's like a a wicked little man who's doing that all, well, the algorithms absolutely choose for us. And the algorithms choose outrage. The algorithms choose uh, this, this, this wounded sense of like moral authority and we're under attack if someone mm-hmm. else is different from us. Right. Like those things are... And what happens, I think, you know, people aren't so unaware that what they click on, what they like, what they don't like, et cetera, just by virtue of just kind of being in the world on the Internet, brings them into this broader reality where it's this sense, well, this is obviously what everybody's saying. And so it just becomes this constantly reinforcing, like kind of self-reinforcing worldview uh, where anybody who's on the outside of that well, there's obviously like that, like, well, of course, they're being like led astray or something because everybody I know is still saying this. Right. Right, and I don't know how to crack that. Yeah, there, there's a there's a thick cloud of denial uh, when you're when I mean we see family dynamics at play on mm. the on the larger scale, um, but the uh, the family dynamic of the person who says dad's an alcoholic but don't talk about it because that's that's being a betrayer. Yeah, wow, is is keeping mm. the sickness mm. in place. The person who names it and is usually scapegoated. Yeah. They're the troublemaker, yes, right? Yes, And so in ideology around, you know, the merger of religion and politics, if you're the person in your mostly, you know, congregation that mostly identifies as conservative mm-hmm. and Christian who says also our candidate of choice is, is a nightmare, mm. you're not going to, you're not, you're not going to belong there anymore. That's right. Right. That's you're right. going to be scapegoated. So, um, you know, when I was in uh, in seminary, my professor said, you know, there's there's a lot of people from really um, more entrenched cultures who are, are, are amazing um, mm. academics and amazing philosophers, but they always end up becoming Episcopalian. Wow! By 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 <laughs> necessity, not by choice, because they're they're ousted from their communities. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And so, following the story wherever it takes them. They're, yeah. they're, not, they're not an ecclesial path. There's, there's reasons to yeah. want to do that. The more, no, I mean, the more they question mm. things in their circles and the more that they um, bring their brilliance to, to, to the conversation, the more they're disinvited from the conversation. Jeez. And, yeah, so. Um, Blake the Surfer, hi, Blake, said on this Instagram, and I feel like this is probably, man, you're stealing our thunder. Maybe uh, you're skipping ahead. I'm not just kidding. This is a, a riff I have all the time. People uh, trying too hard to be contrarian, American-centric, and forget Matthew 5 through 7. Everyone wants to be persecuted. America is majority Christian. The narrow way is a prophetic corrective, getting at Matthew 5 through 7. Well, I couldn't agree with that more, because I think the idea, you know, is so like the Jesus way, this way of blessing enemies, this Mm -hmm. way of Mm self-sacrifice, surrender, uh, this way of the cross, Mm -hmm. um, is a painful and costly one. And that's one of the things I feel like that continues to break my brain is that I feel like the people often that I know who scream the loudest about Jesus mm-hmm. and about their love for Jesus and their love for scripture don't, I, I did, I did a little tweet, tweet thread this morning. I, I need to, I need to not, I need to just not go for this right now. Cause it will go, it will go far. Constantly screaming about Jesus. Never talk about the story of Jesus, mm-hmm. the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, Anything contextually or particular about Jesus. Jesus is like the sentimental idea. And the same thing about scripture. They're constantly talking about the Bible, 
the inerrancy of the Bible, the infallibility of the Bible, the rightness of the Bible, the goodness of the Bible. We only preach the Bible. Really, they don't even end up talking about the Bible either because the Bible, it will push you into these tensions and contradictions deeper in a way that will make you wrestle. Mm -hmm. So they don't even really preach the Bible. They preach about their preaching about the Bible. Someone help me preach right now. They preach about their preaching about Jesus. And it's like, no, you're actually not talking about Jesus or the Bible. This is just your projection of like something that makes you feel secure, but it's not going into the Jesus story. It's not going right. into actual scriptures. I feel like I, I have this experience all the time where I'm like, I'm dying to talk to people about scripture. Where I feel like in a lot of these communities, you can't have an authentic conversation about scripture or about Jesus because of all the rhetoric about scripture and about Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and and by the time you take patriotism and Jesus and uh, consumerism and wrap them together. Yes. I mean, Dr. King talked about that. This is nothing new, but yeah. um, you have a three-headed monster, Ooh. and it's not. Uh, it's it's no longer Christianity, but that's mm. the predominant Christianity mm. in America. I, I mean, I've heard Reverend uh, Otis Moss talk about it um, when we talk about the the church no longer being the church or the church shrinking. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not talking about anywhere but America. That's not true in Asia. That's exactly right. Uh, Central America, South America, Africa, anywhere else. Yes. But yes. This, this place that feels so persecuted yes. while actually persecuting others. Yes. Uh, that's doing to others before they do unto you mentality. Um, that's that's the predominant Christianity practice in our country these days. Well, and Tony, I will say, and I know you're a deep student of the civil rights movement, the freedom movement, uh, language you want to use. Um I, f I feel about Dr. King the same thing that historically I've said about Scripture before. MLK has become this kind of like Rorschach test. People look at MLK because who in our lives now, when it comes time for Martin Luther King Day, is not going to post a meme, is not going to have a quote. And it will be, and, and it might even be an authentic King quote. Some of them are not. But a lot of them are. The kind of idea of like unity... Uh, a dream of a of a better world mm -hmm. where people are able to bridge to bridge difference mm -hmm. b b because of a uh, devotion to a common good is really what it's about. It's like right. something like that. Right. But everything is a is a king person. It's like everything we know about. Here's a person who the last year of his life was probably suicidal, the most miserable he's ever been. No one was showing up at the events. Um, both external in terms of white supremacy, but also within the movement where a lot of people were saying he's weak, he's soft, mm -hmm. uh, his nonviolence doesn't work, all that. A person who it seemed like, it, like there was absolutely, when you look at the outright, we actually have, because it was just late enough, we have numbers about this. MLK's like approval ratings. It was like, it was astonishingly low. Like everyone despised this person right. until he was shot and killed, which when you're cut down younger in life, has a tendency to make one into a martyr. But the idea now that people take King and turn him into like he's a universal symbol, it's like he's Ronald McDonald. And all he cares about is friendship and love and everybody having cheeseburgers, as if he's not talking about economic injustice in the Vietnam War every place that he goes <laughs> the right, last right, year of his life. You right, know? right. You have him in, at the end of his, um, his time um, on Earth talking about don't, buy Wonder Bread, don't buy Siltest yes. Milk, yes. economic boycott, put your money in black banks, take your yeah. money away from these white businesses, put them in black businesses. Black Americans have the financial power of most small countries. Like, go in there. Yeah. And um, 
and he was so incredibly angry. Absolutely. People in his inner circle knew that he was angry. His last sermon that was in his briefcase, this is on display in Atlanta mm. at the uh, Human Rights Museum, the last sermon he was working on when he was killed was called uh, Why America May Go to Hell. Jeez, <laughs> why America and he, may it, go I mean, it has multiple meanings, right? Sure. Yeah, and so, so there was some anger there. Gandhi was extremely angry. Mm. Like his wife mm. caught it. You know, he but they they put on the social face so they could stay alive mm-hmm. long enough to try to try to move the needle a little yeah. bit. But in in their home environments, they were very angry and for good reason. Mm. I mean, Aaron Gandhi, uh, Gandhi's grandson, uh, wrote a book called The Gift of Anger about what mm. his grandfather taught him about holy anger. Mm. I keep that on the uh, table between uh, me and clients in my office. Wow! Uh, because I just think anger such a such a holy emotion when it's appropriate it can be destructive mm. but it's it's so necessary and Jeez. um and um you know deconstruction requires some anger oh um, wow wow it, the, the anger can fester and become its whole other thing but some some anger is uh, mm. most anger is rooted in pain and um uh, and that's holy anger is anybody out here hearing tony caldwell preach I want to make sure we have a little time for Q&A before this over because I, I get these the opportunity to have these kind of conversations. I don't want to, uh, other folks to miss the opportunity to be able to ask some things that are on the heart. Tony, that, that's just hitting me so profound, just the simplicity of most anger is out of pain. Mm-hmm. And I felt like one of the things that, you know, frankly I do because this is you know where I come from, it's what I know. Uh, I feel like I end up being a mystic when I, whether I choose to or not. But part of my sense of like spirit or something or another, even in writing this book, is this idea that, okay, whether it's anger, grief, whatever pain, people have to walk that road as far as it goes, as mm-hmm. far as it will take them. Right. They have to get the end of that road. Because yep. what I feel like I continue to see happen so often is people have these emotions that I think are, in fact, God-given Sometimes they're safety responses. It's you need a little bit of insulation. You need to feel the things that you feel. You need the discomfort to get you out of the driveway. Mm-hmm. But so many people, it's like in addition to the pain that they're experiencing, then it's quadruple the pain because they also have that voice in their head that says, not only are you wrong because you're not on the same path, the fact that you're angry makes you wrong. The fact that you're hurting makes you wrong. And so then it's like this like tripling down on grief because mm-hmm. it's not enough to feel severed from the people who named you in some way. You also have to carry like this new trauma of, well, my responses probably aren't healthy, which must mean I'm a bad person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So for, for mammals not, not belonging to the pack, the tribe, you know, the, uh, mm. the pack, um, no matter you know what that might be whether it's um you know based on your species or your ideology or you know your region whatever it is mm. that's the worst that's the worst thing that can happen yeah. psychologically and emotionally yeah. to uh to a mammal especially human because we have upper order processing that mm-hmm. you know we we feel the terror mm. of the group i used to belong to no longer sees me as an equal and uh, mm. and and I can never get. I mean, it's a real Garden of Eden moment in a way. Um, Man. But with a group, and uh, but that that identity to the group is not supposed to be primary anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the thing that I've had to work through as as far mm. as my anger, 
is that, you know, and Father Roar helped me with this because I went and talked mm. to Father Roar. I spent a day with him talking through all this, and he talked about how um, th- that push into the desert pushes you into primary relationships. Yes, yes. Out of group identity. Yes, into yes. primary relationship, and that's that's what's most important anyway. That's what places are selling yeah. verbally when they're really yeah. selling you group identity. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yo, is it like this is like uh, Tony? I, like I just like th- I would just want this proclaimed from the housetops right now. There's what they're selling is this sense of very incarnate, electric. You know, you've got a direct identity from relationship with God. Mm-hmm. But what they're really putting out is group identity. Mm-hmm. I, this is this is so much for me. What this book is about is right. that because weirdly enough, maybe I'm more evangelical than I've ever been in the sense that I really actually do believe that everybody does need to have a personal relationship with the creator. Now it's not private. It's, you know, you're, we're all part of communities and that's the way it's supposed to work. But that's part of where to me that feels like such a bill of goods now in a lot of contexts is that if people, people are told personal relationship, personal relationship, but in reality they give into the group think and, and Tony, that hit me so powerful too. When you said that it's actually our deepest fear. It's the worst fear that we have mm-hmm. is to be excluded from the group. And so all that gets peddled to us and then reinforced over and over again. And we think that that's God, like in a way that like, how could anybody ever get to a sense of like the kind of agency where you're actually choosing a relationship with God and choosing a sense of self and all that, man, that's right. also, yeah. I'm just amening you really. That's just also strong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is a crossroads moment where it's, uh, it's follow God or follow the community that, mm. that most of us run into at some mm. point. I mean, all of us will at some point on some issue or in yeah. some area. Yeah. And um, that rarely goes well. Yeah, I have to ask you, and I feel like it's so basic to your project is maybe this is where it's like, you know, maybe it just seems self-evident. But several, and I know because you are a good therapist, counselor, coach, all things, I know you never, um, and you don't do that with me. You're you're never gonna like dishonor people, share details of folks' stories, anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you are pretty comfortable, I think, with talking thirty thousand feet about some of these kinds of things mm-hmm. in terms of trends and stuff that you see. I'm so struck by now. Okay, so much of your journey, presumably, is being shaped by you spend however many hours a week. I'm quite certain now it's more than a lot more than forty but with people mm-hmm. who are processing these kind of things in real time. Mm-hmm. And I don't want this to sound too stark, but part of my, my sense of things right now is there are people who by virtue of their profession um, or some choice they made are in those rooms and there are people who are not. And if you don't have to be in the room mm-hmm. with people who are on the wrong side of these communities, who are on the wrong side of the tracks, mm-hmm then you don't have to grapple with this experience. I'd love to just hear you say a little bit about how your, ex- how your own road, your experience personally in terms of being in the trenches with people in this way, mm-hmm. how that shapes where you are now. Because you're hearing these stories day in and day out. You're with people in this very holy and often harrowing like experiences of pain. Like what, how is that coming out in like the person that you are now? Right, yeah. I think it's... Uh it softened me hmm. uh, because my uh, personal anger around seeing my family suffer hmm. um, was really predominant for a long time, you hmm. know. And and when you don't express that as an angry personality, it just sort of hardens into depression. Yeah. 
And so that's how I carried this personally for a long time. And uh, But sitting with so many other people, there's a whole new sense of community, mm. you know. And mm. so when, when I think about being in community with, and I don't mean to seem presumptuous, but to some degree with a Dr. King and a Gandhi, yeah. but also yeah. with everyone that I sit with or walk alongside mm. that doesn't quite fit for some reason, mm. I'm always in good company. I mean, I end up sitting here with you and Juan Carlos, <laughs> you know? And so, so the largeness <laughs> of community uh, dwindles, yeah. but it, it's more concentrated with the things that matter. I'm thinking about Tony, and I don't want you to go further in this than you'd yeah. feel comfortable going. Uh, and anything, at least audio-wise, could be edited later. Uh, so I'll keep this broad. You can say what you wanted only say but part of, I mean since I've known you I've seen some of this in terms of okay well the direction of your life maybe ideologically theologically philosophically some things were different mm -hmm. but also from when I first got to know you there was another way in which you were respected within your community largely mm -hmm. and a lot of people who esteemed you in good and right ways for who you are mm -hmm. But one of the, when you talk about even the pain like with your family, one of the things I've seen is how you, in going with your gut and your heart, your deepest sense of self, I think what you would say would be your, like your deepest sense of what God would be saying to you, kind of in that, in whatever way we'd understand that, mm -hmm. um, having repercussions in terms of real people coming after you and coming after people that you love mm -hmm. in a way that I think would have to be transformative. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's another one of those things that initially there's fear, and there's um, there's anger, and there's mm. there's depression around it. But it, but it after a while it does lead to a softening, wow. a grief for the whole human dilemma, you mm. know, and how incredibly broken it all is. And I remember being taught that theology of brokenness, and it um, it really bugged me. But now mm. I see it from this whole different angle of wow, we, we really are in a mess collectively. Yeah. Yes, you know? yes. And um, there, there, is, there is a path forward out of that, but it's not coming from uh, what group identity would have us choose. Yeah. Ooh. And, you know, I, th I think, I mean, Sting said it, you know, people mm. go crazy in congregations. They only get better <laughs> one by one. And, and yes, I, and I do think, that's so true. I mean, as a... Brother as Sting a, was right. <laughs> yeah, as a, as a person that's in the psychoanalytic world, I mean, that's kind of what we, yeah. that's what we espouse is you, mm. you leave the collective and you find some health and you bring it back to the collective. Yeah. And um, if everyone did that simultaneously, um, we might actually get somewhere. You know, Tony, when you say, because um, that's really hitting for me, this sense of even with the pain, because, and I feel like we both experience this in different ways of sort of becoming the people who we felt like we're supposed to be, you face a certain kind of resistance, and um, then it becomes not just a concern of how it affects you, but the people that you love and all that, and that's, that's kind of its own thing. But when you talk about how this ultimately you feel like has made you more tender, I think, and uh, and I really like. I don't mean this to mean uh, to be sentimental or something, but this is the, these are the kinds of things I feel like I think about all the time now. Mm -hmm. um, as my parents now both are over seventy five, my mom accidentally kind of butt dialed me the night, and it was like midnight, and the and it was she was fine, and we got to catch up for a few minutes. Great, but that sense of fear of like, oh my God, what's happened? Um, I have a 
10-pound Havanese dog that has been uh, <laughs> in the midst of us this whole time who it's like, man, like she's seven years old and she's so small and the world is so big and like I worry about her and like whatever. It's like the point is I just have these experiences all the time. I have it constantly with Nicole and the kids to where sometimes it's experiences of love and beauty and goodness, but sometimes it's fear in terms of the world that they're in and, and like what could happen to them and how I process that like returns me to being human mm-hmm. in a way that you just, that I cannot and don't want to get past that no matter where people are in a conversation like this, that they're experiencing the world that way. They have people they love. Mm-hmm. They have a world that feels very fragile. These things that feel like very tender. Um, how, how do you, because I feel like this is a real conversation for a lot of people. And I mean, we're even Tony, as you talk eloquently and I think rightly about like how people need to be angry and have space to process that and all that. How, how is it that we're able to kind of stay in the world and stay in the game in a way where we retain this kind of tenderness that we need to see the humanity in ourselves and others and not just get bitter? Yeah, yeah. For me, it meant leaving. Mm. Yeah, so we went from a very rural, very um, religious and very uh, conservative area that's 99% in line with Trump mm. in most most uh, areas of uh, thought or belief or practice. Um, and we live in an extremely progressive community now wow. in East Nashville. And uh, I've actually been able to relax mm. and be me mm. um, in a new way there. Uh, we literally went from a congregation that couldn't and wouldn't affirm um, anyone from a sexual minority mm. to having, um, you know, um, a uh, LGBTQ uh, community center built mm. directly behind our house now, mm. like literally our closest neighbor. So we're at the opposite end of so many spectrums. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think the best way to sum it up uh, is, is my 15-year-old when we moved into that community said, mm. I can walk down the road and not – like overthink about who's looking at me and what they're thinking. Wow. Ooh. And uh, there, there's something mm. about, you know, loving from afar that sometimes just unnecessary. I mean, yeah. I think unnecessarily, but also unfortunately um, necessary. Yeah. Mm. I think it's mm. ultimately unnecessary, but, Man. but when you get into group dynamics and, and raising children and everything, sometimes you, Geographical moves are just necessary. Yeah, mm. and um, and leaving community sometimes is necessary mm-hmm. um, because uh, you know at the end of the day, today I spend all day every day modeling who I am and what I believe mm-hmm. to my children, mm-hmm. and uh, and and I, that wasn't true a few years ago. Yeah, and uh, that's not easy, yeah. but it's uh, it's often necessary. Nicole uh, just said healthy distance is sometimes the only way to love. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, only you, only us in terms of can discern when you're kind of at that place. But it, it just it just makes so much sense. And I feel like I don't feel like with this book that I did anything brilliant. But part of what I it just keeps blowing my own mind is this in the simple story of the Emmaus Road and Luke's Gospel. That's one of the things I've been talking about for years and can't get around the two disciples leaving Jerusalem ostensibly despair. Jesus can't really be the Messiah now because he's been crucified. 
all that pain. And as they're having this deeply authentic, vulnerable conversation about their pain, God's walking alongside of them unannounced. And that from that's one of the themes for me is this idea that so far as they know, and I don't, I'm not trying to make some kind of weird Hebrew Jewish Christian equivocation here, but I do think that this is a, there's a similar path that probably most mature humans have to go through no matter what their religious system. I think everybody has to go through. It's not like Jews versus Christians or something. But this idea that, you know, in their minds, if we can say this in our very Christian vernacular, they're leaving church, leaving temple, leaving institution, but they accidentally become a new community in sharing their pain on the way mm-hmm. in, in, in which God is present. Right. And I feel like that just for me is so descriptive of a lot of people's experience right now. They didn't set out to start something new. It's not like doing a church plant. It's not like, you know, like, oh, we're going to go pioneer this thing. It, they, they felt cast out. They felt driven out. But what I keep seeing happen is from the margins of these respective communities, people find each other and a holy kind of very sacred kind of new community emerges, whether people intend that to be the case or not. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that's just not formal. Mm. Yes. You know, I've even seen formalizing that sort of become the mirror image of the thing that was being left. That's right. You know, and so... um, I would say when you walk a path where nothing and no one can lay claim to your soul, you're going to mm-hmm. end up with a, a pretty different group of folks. That's right. And, That's uh, right. And um, people like Shane Claiborne may come yeah. along, you know. Yeah. But but people who um, are willing to take all the hits mm-hmm. and keep taking them. Yes. Um, yes. Those might be your people. Yeah. Because they love, yeah. The people who are willing to take yeah. the hits, good grief, and take them for others, not because they'd have to, yeah. But because um, th- 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 there is that kind of laying down one's life or something, you know. And uh, we can wrap this up in a, a minute or two, Tony. I'm just thinking, all this is landing in so many places in me right now. Um, well, for one, I guess just thinking about this idea that um, you know people finding each other, this new community that's created the goodness, the beauty that happens there. I love what you said, by the way, and I'm not, I don't want to get a rant here, but I feel like it is important to name that oftentimes the way of being Mm -hmm. that we've known in that community becomes so intrinsic to us that even when we change our minds, really we haven't changed our wiring or our behavior hearts, which to me is the thing that explains without judgment, because I'm not feeling particularly feisty about this tonight. Sometimes I can get feisty about it, but this, the way that we'll see you go from one community that demands absolute ideological purity. If you don't believe all 15 things the way that we do, then you're not one of us to another community that equally says has strict, rigid, ideological, doctrinal purity code. If you're different from us in one thing, then you don't belong. And if you don't belong, the the level of threat to that of like, what we'll do to you, like whatever it is. I do think sometimes people have to experiment a bit to, before they're able to find okay, I need to do something more than just move from one end of the continuum to another. Right, yeah. You know, when I was uh, addressing a lot of racial issues in my hometown and was getting some pushback, my uh, psychoanalyst said, uh, do you think you're still being evangelical in your approach? Mm. And I was like, say more. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, are you sending out the vibe that I'm right, you're wrong, and if you do it my way, you'll be good instead of bad? Good Lord. And I was like, yes, I'm doing that. And there are like 
dozens wow. of influencers out there doing that. Mm. And I wish they were all sitting in your office yes, as well. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and okay, and like, okay, I promise, and I because I will kick it out yeah. if anybody has questions, and then yeah. we'll we'll wind the thing up. But Tony, this you so beautifully led, and the one thing I want to make sure I ask you about, or at least because this thing that's stirring in me literally today, I can't stop thinking about this. The um, because especially coming from communities where there's ostensibly a deep love for scripture, mm-hmm. there's a deep love for sacred text. And one of the things that I continue to find the most frustrating, and I, I literally right now, I'm doing everything I can to avoid any sort of pejorative language. There's no, I'm trying to make this as non-loaded as I possibly can. Right. But on some of these, uh, on social issues, how they think about the world, how they think about their neighbors, there are literally a handful at best, sometimes depending on what we're talking about, one, two, three text that they're grappling with, well, what do these texts mean mm-hmm. that are even like kind of in question? Right. And I just keep having this thing that's been, it's actually been coming to mind since early this morning. I've been awake for a long time today. Um, this idea that people can know the scriptures, the way that Jesus says to the contemporary teachers of his time, you think you know the scriptures, you search the scriptures, but if you really knew them, if you really knew God, you know me, that this right. idea... But there's this thing that happens where people can know the scriptures and miss the whole story. That they, that in, the, the attempt to try to wrangle with a couple of Bible verses miss the trajectory of the entire story. Mm-hmm. And just because it's, uh, if I can say it this way, I'm not, I'm really not bullshitting anyway here because this is the kind of stuff I think about all the time. I, the further I go, because scripture is deeply important to me, maybe more important than ever, and um, I value it and I esteem it as a holy book and this idea the Holy Spirit speaks. Like, I'm, I'm into all of it. But one of the things that I find so mysterious about this now is that, okay, as a follower of Jesus, the, and I'm not trying to go on a familiar preaching riff here, the central scandal of the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth on earth is his table practice. Mm-hmm. It is the main thing that... Each gospel gives more press to than anything is this idea that Jesus eats and drinks with the wrong people. What it means to eat and drink, that kind of the the dignity that comes out of that experience. And coming to this place in my life where I realized, wait a second, I've basically never heard a sermon where anybody talks about this. And that's the central scandal of Jesus in the gospels. Or the fact that the movement in the story over and over again, to use this wonderful language in Hebrews, that Jesus is crucified outside the gate that Jesus is the one who identifies as, as the ultimate insider. He becomes the ultimate outsider to be able to identify with us in that deepest pain. And yet people, because of the way they might be thinking about like one verse, can't grasp the whole movement of the story. It's the arc of the story. It's everywhere. It's not a couple of verses. It's not ambiguous. It's not like, well, it could mean this or it could mean that. It's what the stories seem to scream at every turn. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if I have anything so much uh, constructive to say about that right now. It's maybe it's right now just striking me at a place of deep grief of how is it that people can know that many Bible verses? How is it they can know that many scriptures and miss the story that's front and center the whole time? Yeah. I, I, it, it's clear that the personality is often reading scripture, not the soul. Oof. And wow. protecting my place in the social structure um, mm. 
is equally as important as, as Scripture. What do you mean uh, when you say the personality, not the soul? Um, so if I'm if I'm reading Scripture as a white, straight male American, my soul is not reading Scripture. Mm-hmm. My personality yeah. is my my constructed, no. socially yeah. constructed self, not not my limitless, timeless self, um, child of God identity self. Mm. Mm. Um, and it's impossible to be really invested in those identities and read scripture from the bottom up as if you're the most disempowered person on earth. Mm. And when you do that, it, it flips everything upside down. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. I keep thinking about, uh, and I won't go to the exact quote, but Howard Wass's thing for years, this whole idea of modernity, that's the, the idea is that, you know, you didn't have this, you, you, you're people with no story, essentially. You don't have a story. Right. And I continue to see this in every conversation, I say in every, in so many, in ways that I really am trying to walk softly because, you know, when I do think if people are not on a journey, you can't force them on it. I'm not trying to, mm-hmm. you know, just light dynamite or like whatever. But what I continue to see in this particular conversation that um, just strikes me as such a profound and and maybe like, disenchanting thing it's like well okay so people have um people have these ideas and it is that what informs your personality of course all of us are a product of our own culture of course we're product of our own moment of course we're product of our own time and yet there's this weird assumption that people who are different from us have a culture Mm-hmm. And and actually, this the quiet part that is actually said out loud more and more. I think right now it's people are are allowed to say it in a lot of the circles. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that's black culture. That's how they are. That's how they talk. I mean, I hear this kind of thing all the time. That's their culture, and people legitimately, earnestly seem to have no idea that they have a culture. They believe they're not enculturated. They think they're not the product of a particular people in a particular place in a particular time who have preferences that their own life experiences within a community haven't shaped them in any way. Mm -hmm. And I don't know until people kind of have something dislodge them from that. I don't know how you talk a person out of that. This idea that like whatever it is that you come from is normal. Right. And whatever it is that other people come from is that's that, well, that's their culture. Yeah. You know, I've, I hate to say this, but you're, you're reminding me of a, a funny post I saw a year or so ago where a guy said, I just went to a birthday party for a dog. <laughs> and people try to tell me that we white folks don't have culture. <laughs> um, but, but seriously, yeah, there's there's a sense that well. my, 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 you know, every, every, Every view from every point is a point of view. Yeah, that's sense right. Of this this egocentric, Eurocentric, American centric. Yeah. On down the line. You yeah. Know? But it's it's. Uh, I think the best way to talk about this is the opposite of intersectionality. Mm. So intersectionality mm. is when you have all these layers piling on top of you that yeah. that marginalize you. Mm. And what we're talking about is the exact opposite of that. And you can well, use the word privilege if you want to, but that. Some people can't hear you when you use that word. Yes, yes. But where, where, again, if I if I am coming at any social issue or reading scripture yeah. or anything, not just as a human, but as 
a white, straight, male, American, conservative, Christian, mm -hmm. on and on and on, and pile on all the, you know, before you even get into region or who your favorite sports team is or any of all the other yeah. identities, you're about 15 or 20 identities deep before you even lay eyes on Scripture. Wow. And you're just not going to be clear-headed or clear-hearted. Um, I got to stop. Yeah, I feel like, Tony, this is the way I feel like I do with you. It's like I'm, I'm having all the conversation I want to have, and I'm not right. trying to, like, hog the thing. But this is so helpful for me right now, the very idea that you say people go through 15, 20 identities before they get to the text. This, this myth that anybody has unmediated access to a text— that you are ground zero, that you you are just a, a normal person. You're an average right. person. Whatever experience is going to that, you carry no, you carry nothing into the table that shapes how you read and how you hear. Mm -hmm. But all these other folks who have different experiences and cultures and worldview from you, they're bringing their baggage mm -hmm. to the table. Man, yeah. that's insidious. Yeah. Uh, two more things that come to mind. One is if you. If you uh, catch yourself and don't speak up every time the people mm. in your affinity group say or do things that you don't align with, how contorted are you? Mm. You're a contortionist, wow. but how wow. how many how many bends are in you, and how out mm. of shape are you from mm. from who you really are? Uh, and then the other being, if you if you live a life daily that's incompatible with your soul. At some point, you're you're just going to choose it and not even know it. Jeez. Um, and you know, I mean, Jen Hatmaker said it: the price for when you're in a sea of sameness, yeah. the price for variation is belonging. Yeah. And most of us just worship the idol of family and the idol of belonging. At the end of the day, you know, those are the things we don't want to lose, and the things that are going to make us feel. Um, abandoned and full of grief and all the things we don't want to feel, but maybe that's what picking up your cross and carrying it Jeez. looks and feels like. Maybe it's not worth reading. I was just, this Howard Wass and Sam Wells book, I was just reading Howard Wass had this great riff about that, but the idea that people sort of assume the New Testament is so pro-family when in reality you have a couple references to family and husband, the wonderful husband and wife thing in Ephesians 5 and mutu the mutuality and like whatever. But in reality, this idea that basically every text gestures towards this idea that this is a community that transcends. You don't have to be married. You don't have a family. There's not like this. It, it doesn't even seem all that like pro-marriage. There's this idea of like you, <laughs> there's a larger community that you're responsible to. That's not about like me and mine, which is the opposite messaging of what I think a lot of people can get in church or whatever. So anyway, I, I don't mean to like pound a thing to ground. I'm just so struck by that tonight, how real that is in terms of the obstacles that we have and that we've all had at different points in our journey to not be able to see what we're bringing to the table, mm -hmm. to not be able to see the way our own experiences, worldview, culture, whatever language you want to use is shaping how we read. But the idea of well, other people you know, but they're, they, they need it to be this way. So they make it into that, like whatever, having no idea that like, this is what we're, right. this is what we're doing all the time. I don't want to hog Tony and we're going to need to leave soon. And already this has been like, uh, I'm sure for audio version, it'd be like a very long podcast. If anybody has any questions you want to ask or anything you want to direct, please feel free to do that right now. Cause I don't want to rob you of that opportunity where I feel like I'm hogging it, but it, it's just so helpful. Tony, just that construct of helping. I don't know. just, I feel like being able to see again, you know, again, it's not intrinsic wickedness, but there are real reasons why mm -hmm. we have 
to, to, to need to think that the way our community does it is what's normal and good and right and the way somebody right. else does it is right. yeah. wrong and unhealthy or yeah. whatever. And you know, a, an old wise friend of mine uh, said to me a few months ago, you, you know, Tony, not just individuals become pathological, Ooh. groups do as well. Wow. Not just individuals become narcissistic, wow. uh, groups do as well. And um, so I think that's part of what we're dealing with. And deconstruction at the end of the day is not just about undoing religious belief. Mm. It's about re- returning to a, an original sense of self. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's comprehensive. That's yeah. from everything you've ever been taught. Like, the, you know, the Zen questioner is, who, would, who were you before you had a face? Yes. The, the Jungian question would be, who were you before you were told who to be? Mm. And it's, you know, most of us don't know. Mm. But it's trying to live into that answer. Yes, as a living question, uh, you know, it's 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 soul recovery. That's right. And, Ooh, uh, you soul know, recovery. You know, Jimi Hendrix talked about musicians having too many fingerprints on their brains, but mm. all of us do. You know, where we're we're singing someone else's song. Um, uh, Tim said you and Dr. Green some ten plus years where you say how we read the Bible says more about us than the text. I think that that uh, that it's here, and I that just makes so much sense to me. It's part of what I feel, and maybe we could, uh, maybe this would be a good place to land it, Tony. I, I'm having such a good time, and we get we get to keep talking. That's the thing, Tony's in town, and like, we get to do this, it's wonderful. But um, I'm just thinking about like how, because I feel like this is maybe worth saying, because we haven't said this overtly or explicitly, but whether it be like your own experience as a therapist, but I think just, generally people's experience as a human, this idea that when we encounter stories that challenge us, that we need to pay attention to the stories and we need to pay attention to people who are living these stories and that that is a holy thing. In a weird way, and this is one of the reasons nobody cares about this, but why I still self-identify as a Pentecostal Christian is this idea that I feel like that's part of what's in the DNA at best is this notion that you can't reject the witness of the spirit no matter where you see that no matter who might be an unexpected person or community or like whatever when you see the witness of the spirit you have to take that very seriously but i feel like so many people have this messaging of you know when the their deepest self not a superficial self but their deepest self sees good gifts in other people or sees something that's different that they're not supposed to trust that they're not supposed to trust their own experience that they're not supposed to trust their own eyes and ears yeah, and, and you know, it, it it begs a serious question when you're told to not trust yourself, who are you being told to trust? Because it, I would think if you're in personal relationship, uh, maybe trusting yourself and trusting God sometimes overlaps. Yeah. And um, letting go and letting your religious leader let God may be more of what's being called for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, from these external voices. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, I think we can look around and see where that often leads. I feel like I'm on a thing here, Tony, and I need to let. And I actually do. I think like I like I authentically need to let it go. I feel like I could be. Yeah. I try not to bring too much in my own like whatever, but it's just so it's just so present in my mind right now that for a lot of folks, the message they hear though, because I, like it's it's where and I feel like there this disconnect becomes that the people who who tell them what they're supposed to believe constantly say this is what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. Other people are doing interpretation. They're doing interpretive work. Right. But I'm not giving you interpretation. 
I'm telling you thus saith the Lord. So it's how people are then able to say you shouldn't listen to the preacher, you shouldn't read another book, while people are spending countless hours every week listening to that person. Because the implicit idea is, well, everybody else has an interpretation. I'm just delivering the mail. And I think like it's it's really hard for a lot of folks to kind of get beyond that. that When these people who mediate these ideas to us are telling us all the time, how authoritative they are and that they're only giving us what God gives to them. Well, you know, no wonder then that people are second guessing right. their, their own soul's deepest right. knowing. Right. Yeah. I mean, one thought here is if, if you, I mean, if you just thought about um, a, um, let's take a hypothetical person mm. and you put them in a situation where um, everything around belonging, not just for them, but everyone they care about is yeah. tied up in, um, really going with the given program Hmm. and you're not told where the overlap between literacy and literalism Hmm. is and i think that's that's a whole that's a huge conversation wow but but you're often you're not told where that is but you're told uh when you've stepped into it yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs) yes you are yeah yes you uh, are (laughs) and and so so you you have that and then you have the fact that this uh organization and the teachings and everything also help you deal deal with the problem of death Mm. and Mm. now you know so your your sense of belonging to the community Mm. uh the problem of death and don't mess up or you're going to go to the bad place Mm. all overlap wow and our inner nine-year-old is just wants to be okay yes how are we really going to make a rational clear-headed adult decision under that kind of duress yeah it's a setup yeah um that that we all have to figure out what to do with because it's Mm. real and i don't mean that to be negative or to say someone's doing that to you on purpose because they're probably not sure at the end of the day that's the dynamic that um we had to sell ourselves into when we were six, seven, eight, nine years old. That's right. And that part of us is still showing up going, I don't know what to do with all of this, but let's play it safe. Yeah. Oh man. That's so true. Um, Matthew said, and I think I love it. I mean, it's what you said, but I feel like it's so important to punch home when you're told not to trust yourself, who are you being told to trust? Hashtag preach. It's just such, I just think it's such a profound point. If you're told not to trust yourself, who are you being told to trust? Cause then, you're being told to trust somebody. And, um, well, I just, Tony, I'm just so grateful, partly because I feel like there is such a deep witness of the Spirit in what you're doing, because I think it does come out of a deep human kind of listening to God and to others um, that gives people permission, again, to just go on this kind of journey, mm-hmm. uh, which is, goodness, I don't wouldn't know how to tie a bow on things like this big. The idea for me, I, I, I know at least at this point in my life, I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to get people on a particular journey, on a particular destination, but I just think people do have to have, to have a sense of permission that they're able to go on the road that your soul says you must go on. Right. And if you don't do that, at some point you just implode. And what you said a few minutes ago, that was powerful. Like this idea that ultimately you will decide without making a decision because if you're not able to go with what's deepest in you, then inevitably you kind of sabotage yourself for your life in ways that you don't intend to precisely right. because your body's not going with the program. Yeah, so. at some point, becoming neurotic is gonna just gonna do it all for you. Wow! Well, yeah. when, when your when, when your so when your soul goes where your body goes and it's not working for you, things are gonna um, 
show up in the form of symptoms. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yes. So, wow. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, um, I'm saying this facetiously because I think everybody needs to process their own experience or whatever, but I think uh, Antoni so generously taking this much time because surely we've gone more like an hour and a half than the intended, more like 45 minutes or an hour. But I feel like uh, theoretically it sort of saves some folks some co-pays because I think a lot of people who are here and listen to this they can experience this is like deep, soulful, <laughs> feeling seen and known. So uh, thank you, friend, for just your gifts and your witness and um, for having this conversation tonight. It's been really, really beautiful. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back. I do want to encourage you that if you need to talk to somebody, you want to take the next steps. Um, I've been so encouraged by different ones of you have told me over the last few years you've been able to connect with Tony in some form, um, that he is out there. And even if you don't live in Tennessee, I know he's uh, got a very full life, uh, but uh, he, he does see people from other places. If people do want to try to connect in some form, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, you can find me on here uh, on Instagram at Tony Caldwell. Uh, just shoot me a message there. That would be the easiest way to find me, and uh, we can go from there. Beautiful. I am, uh, like, and I just literally threw that out for the first time in the last day or two. Uh, you know, for folks who want to have conversations in this regard, I don't, I'll be very quick to say I don't feel like I have the, the clinical training, but part of my lot in life right now, maybe all the more since the book is out, is a lot of people just need to process religious trauma. So uh, just know also, and I'm certainly said that to folks within our community here, if you need if you need somebody to talk to, if you need to process things and need like a, a non-anxious presence where there's not an agenda, uh, just throwing that out there as well. But I hope you'll find somebody and that you don't just bury these things inward because I do feel like, especially right now, um, it's a traumatic time in the world and it's a traumatic time in ourselves. And um, you truly are not in this alone. And I hope if there's nothing else that you take away from this night, that you'll feel that, that you're not by yourself on this road that you're walking. And some of the things that sometimes can feel so alienating and isolating and you think you're the only person in existence or whatever no there's a lot of people who are feeling this the way that you are and uh and there's nothing wrong with you so that <laughs> i want to say that there's nothing wrong with you anyway love y'all thanks so much for the time and uh we'll do this again soon if you're not following tony on every social platform do it right now thanks <laughs>